Thanks for finding us. This is a message recorded at Fairfax Assembly in Bakersfield, California. You can find out more at fairfaxassembly.com. Well, 295 questions. That's what somebody has tallied up is the number of questions Jesus asks in the gospel accounts. 295. And we're approaching it this way. We're doing a series that we began a few weeks ago about questions Jesus asked and you should answer. And we have looked at some of Jesus' questions already, like, why do you worry? We looked and saw how he addressed that. We looked at the question of he asking, do you believe I can do this? He also asked another question we looked at a couple of weeks ago. Why do you notice the speck in somebody else's eye? Well, he answered all of those questions in short order, and if you like, they're all online. You can find them on our Facebook page. I'm, I'm understanding that between that and the SoundCloud and iTunes that we get many, many, many more people hearing the message uh, that way than we, we do when we gather here on Sunday morning. So you may want to catch up and, and take a look there. But 295, that's a lot of questions. And do you realize that he never asked the question because he needed to know the answer. He wasn't asking the question because he couldn't get it information any other way. He wasn't asking the question as an icebreaker, a little get-to-know-you technique. He wasn't even using it like good teachers use it to broaden our horizons and open up the discussion. That's not the way he used questions. He used questions like a scalpel in the hands of a skilled surgeon would be used. He used questions to cut into and peel back the layers of stuff that stands between you and me and our healing. That's why he asked questions. That's the way he used them. Well, there's a week of Jesus' life that is arguably the busiest week of his life. I don't think a lot of grass grew under the feet of Jesus anyway, but the final week of his life, what we call Holy Week, that begins here on this day with Palm Sunday as he enters the city for the last time, and it ends with Good Friday, a misnamed day. In that week, there are buried several very important questions. It is, it is a hectic week, but it is a very carefully choreographed week. And as you look at the last week of the life of Christ, you get the distinct impression somebody is in charge of every little detail here. Now already there is a price on his head as he goes in to that last week. A few days before, there has been a council that's been held by the religious leaders in the brain trust in Jerusalem. And they have come together to decide, what are we going to do with Jesus? His popularity has grown so that we can no longer ignore him. What are we going to do if we let him continue in the way he's going? There's going to be disruption, and the Romans are going to come, and they're going to take away our nation, and just as importantly, the leaders said, they will remove us from power. And we can't let that happen. So what are we going to do with Jesus? That was the council question that day. Caiaphas was one of the leaders. He was the high priest that year. And Caiaphas, he decided to bully his way through. 
and get what he wanted out of that council. Now, what you need to know about Caiaphas is he was an insolent, insulting, difficult, short-tempered kind of a person, and he always made sure that his way was the only way. And as they begin to discuss what they're going to do with Jesus, will we accept him as the Christ or will we reject him? He already had an agenda going into the meeting, Caiaphas did, and he pushed through his suggestion. He began his part of the discussion by making fun of everybody else on the council. He said, are you all a bunch of morons? Do you know nothing? Don't you know it's better that one man die rather than the whole nation die? It's better that he die for the nation than the whole nation be eliminated? He did not realize it, but he was speaking prophetically. He did not know the import of his own words because he was actually prophesying that it was better for Jesus to die than the whole world would die in sin. He didn't realize what he was saying, but he pushed through an execution decree against Jesus. That, he said, is how we will handle this. It was his idea. I have a feeling that Caiaphas knew full well what he was doing. He knew he was executing an innocent person, but I believe Caiaphas knew he really is the Christ. And yet he went ahead with his scheme. That would make him among the most awful people that have ever lived. But he pushes through his execution scheme, and, and they decide then that's what we will do. A day or so later, after those secret meetings took place where the decision was made how they would handle Jesus when he came back into town, it's Palm Sunday. It's the day that we call the day of the triumphal entry. As Jesus comes down the hill into the city of Jerusalem for the final time, the crowds begin to grow because they have heard that only a few weeks before he caused a man to rise from the dead who lived just outside of town in the village of Bethany. Lazarus had been brought back from the dead. That was especially disturbing to people like Caiaphas who did not believe in life after death. Caiaphas did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. And so it was especially disturbing to him, and that's one of the reasons he had to have Jesus killed, because here was living proof. Lazarus, people do live after death, and Jesus has something to do with it. But because of the Lazarus miracle, people began to gather to see this man who had caused the dead to come back to life. It was Jesus. And they put him on an animal and, and they begin to throw the branches of the palm trees down and they throw their garments down on the ground so that even Jesus' animal doesn't have to walk in the dirt on his way into town. And the crowds become almost unhinged in their enthusiasm to welcome this one who can raise the dead and they proclaim him king. They say he is the anointed one. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the king, and they begin to shout, Hail to the king. Hosanna! Hosanna! It means Lord save. By that day, it had come to mean something along the lines of Hail to the king. And they welcome him into town. And they recall the words of the psalm, again, 
predicting that day when the Messiah would come in through the gates. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be ye lift up, ye everlasting doors. And the King of glory will come in. And the King of glory came in. And the first thing he did was go to his father's house. That place from the time he was a little boy he was so attached to. Don't you know I had to be in my father's house? And he goes to the great temple complex. And he enters a section of the temple called the Court of the Nations. The temple was not a single building. It was a complex of buildings spread over many, many acres. And there was a section where people who were not part of the nation of Israel, they were allowed to come into the temple itself too. Not the temple proper, but they were allowed to come into the place called the Court of the Nations. That's where they could go. That's where they could worship. Probably for money reasons, the chief priests had made the decision, we're going to use the Court of the Nations as a place of business. And there they allowed the money changers to set up. And there they allowed the people that sold the small animals used in sacrifice and sold other trinkets and other things that didn't have anything to do and probably sold concessions and food and things that travelers would need. And by the time all of the merchants got done setting up all of their booths and their stalls and their table, there was precious little space for the nations to come and worship. When Jesus saw that, something burned inside of him. And he began to turn the tables over. And he began to kick down the stalls of the dove salesmen. And he began to upend the tables and the booths of the loan sharks and all of the rest. And then he cried out and he said to those leaders who objected to him doing this, don't you know that my house, my house is to be a house of prayer and you have made it a hangout for thieves. And he chased them all away. And when all of the commerce was gone, the people could come in. And among the first people who were starved to be in that place that represented the presence of God, among the first to filter into that now emptier space were the sick. The blind and the lame were led into that place, and the first thing they did was make a beeline for Jesus, and he healed them. Standing there by his compassion, his anger, what his disciples will later on call his zeal, it now turns to compassion as the blind and the lame come to him. And now they're able to enter. And there among the scattered trash of the business day and the commerce and standing between all of the broken furniture and upturned tables, he heals them with a word and with a touch. He heals them. And that begins the first of two controversies that he's involved in. The first is the, is the disturbing, the commerce that goes on there. But the second controversy is this. There are children there. Probably unattended children in some cases. Maybe street kids for all we know. But there are children. And as the children are watching all of this unfold and they see the people who cannot walk and, and legs are growing in front of their eyes. 
And they see the blind that stumble in, tapping with their canes, suddenly screaming and shrieking in happiness that they can see. The children are trying to process this. And as they try and find a way to process these healings, they pick up and they begin to repeat what they heard the adult crowd saying as Jesus came in to the city. And they begin to cry out, Hosanna! Hosanna! The kids begin to parrot it. God save! Hail to the king! That's what they say. That's how they process. When they, when they saw the wonderful things, they begin to shout and they begin to dance, and they begin to praise. But the religious leaders see the very same things, and it says they become indignant. They become incensed. Maybe jealousy is what fuels that indignity in them because Jesus can do what they cannot do, and by law they should have been able to do. But he does it. And that's how he enters the temple. That's how he enters on that last week of his life. They become indignant. They want to know, why are you letting these kids say these things? Why are you accepting praise from these children? Why don't you shut them up? Because it's offensive speech. And Jesus asks his question. He says to them, Matthew 21, if you care to turn there. He says to them in Matthew 21, the blind and the lame had come to him in the temple. He had healed them. The chief priests and all of the lawyers and all of the brain trust, all the bright boys, all the power brokers, they saw the wonderful things he had done. And while the children are shouting and dancing and singing Hosanna and praising, they're indignant. And Jesus says to them, verse 16, Matthew 21, he said to them, did you hear these? They say, did you hear these children? And what they're saying, and Jesus said to them, here it is, his question, yes, I heard it. Have you never read? Have you never read? And he quotes the eighth psalm. Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have prepared praise for yourself. And then he left them. It's his turn to be indignant now. And then he turns and he leaves them and he went out of the city to Bethany, the city of Lazarus, his friend. And he spent the night there. There's already a death threat on his head. It wouldn't do to stay in town and have some assassin slit his throat. He is not afraid of dying, but it'll be on his terms. But he leaves the city with that word, have you never read? Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise for yourself. Of course they had read that. Very likely, some in that very crowd that were questioning him, why do you allow these children to praise you like that? Very probably, many people in that crowd of his critics had memorized those words. Of course they had read it many times and committed it to memory. And you know what that means? That means that you can read Scripture. You can read Scripture a lot and miss major things. You, you can read the Bible for years. You can read it repeatedly. You can read it faithfully. You can read it religiously 
and still miss the point. They miss the point. And the reason they miss the point is because children see what adults, even adult believers, sometimes miss. The word that's used here of these children, it could be older children, it could be little children, it could be infants, it could be nursing babies. It was probably all. And those children saw something that everybody else around them was missing. There's something that they just knew that nobody had taught them. The children see something. What do they see exactly? Well, one of the things the children see that the adults miss that day is that praise is fun. Praise is fun. It's not drudgery. It's not a duty. It's not even just an honor. It's not an obligation. It is fun. Children do what is fun. If you spend any time around kids at all, you know that if it's not fun, they don't do it. They'll lose attention, and they don't do it. I'm a little bit like that. If I don't enjoy it, I don't like to do it. Praise is fun. That's what the kids know. I read an account a week or so ago of a church that had several special needs kids in the church, but there were some prickly, persnickety members of that church that objected to the kids being a little bit disruptive in the service. And they were vocal. And so the leaders of the church decided, all right, all right. They didn't do what I would have done. They probably did a better thing than I would have done. But they said, all right, we will start a a service just for special needs kids. And they did. On Wednesday night, they started a a service. Now, they realized that with special needs kids, we, we can't go into a long sermon with all kind of detailed points. That won't do. So what we will do is emphasize the music and the worship and the praise, and we will tailor it to them. And so it was upbeat and fast-paced, and it began to grow. And over a period of several months, people began to bring more of their special needs kids, and the word got out, and pretty soon the auditorium on most Wednesday nights was full, and people would come in, and they would see all of these special needs kids worshiping, but they worshiped like it was fun, and they had banners, and they had flags, and they were allowed to get up and move around, and some of the Down Syndrome's kids, the way they worshiped is they would go from person to person and hug them and kiss them, and person to person and hug them and kiss them. That's how they worshiped. And, and some of the kids that had other afflictions, they would just stand in circle and they would worship like this. But that was okay. And other kids would run and other kids would jump and other kids would stand on the furniture. But it was all okay. And other people, not special needs, or at least not that special need, would come in and see that it was so much fun that now everybody goes to that service. Because praise is fun. And the kids demonstrate that. You know, the way some adults avoid praise, it makes me wonder sometimes. I actually know people 
that say about their church, well, I will go, but I, I go after the worship is over because I don't care for all that music and I just want the message. And I'll just come in when the message starts. I'll wait 25 minutes. People actually do that. Or they don't come at all. Some people almost look for reasons not to praise, not to worship. Acting like it's a chore, like it's a duty. Do you realize that the word praise comes to us from a French word, prêcher, which means to prize. To prize. Jesus is somebody we prize. He is the prize. And when we begin to get involved with Him and begin to praise Him, prize Him, it's to be an enjoyable thing. The kids show us that. The kids see that. Praise is fun. Kids here also see that praise is natural. The adults in the crowd are missing that, but they see that praise is natural. And praise is natural. And by that I mean that's what nature does. You don't have to prime nature. You don't have to tutor nature. You don't have to school nature. You don't have to guide nature. Nature is praising all the time. Every blade of grass is reaching up, and that's praise. Every time the doves are singing, that's praise. When, when you see water cascading down a mountain stream, that's praise. It's doing what it's supposed to do. When, when you, you see the trees in the evening as the sun goes down and against that orange sky and everything is still except those few little leaves up at the top, they catch a breeze. And you begin to see their underside as they twist and turn. That's those trees praising. That's what nature does. And the only part of nature that has the ability to opt out of praise, to opt out of prizing Jesus Christ, is you and me. We're the only part that can say, no. Praise is natural. And the kids see that. They see that. The leaders are indignant. The leaders are shocked because the children were calling him king. Hail to the king. And they're describing Jesus in ways that should only describe God. And, and the beef that the religious leaders have is this. To Jesus, do you hear what those children are saying? And they're saying to Jesus, any ordinary rabbi would put a stop to that kind of excessive, even blasphemous talk from his followers Shut them up, Jesus. But he's no ordinary rabbi, is he? He accepts the praise because he is God. He is God. And therefore the praise from these children, hail to the King, Hosanna, Lord save, it is appropriate, it is fitting, it is natural, it is right. And the children know it. It's natural, and it's right to praise, not because you feel like it, not because it's time, not because you get caught up in the moment, then I will praise, but it's right because of who he is. You should praise him because of who he is. They know that. They see that. And they also see that praise is God's idea. 
You know, I think a lot of people, even Christians, actually harbor in the back of their mind this idea that, that worship, and especially a worship service, that a time to come together and praise corporately, that is something that sour-faced humans have constructed to ruin my Sunday mornings. I think people actually think that. Do you realize that the reason we gather on this day, the first day, and call it the Lord's Day, is because this is the day he rose from the dead. And, and, and so what we're doing every single Lord's Day, every single Sunday, 52 times a year, we're, we're celebrating the resurrection of Christ. That's what it is. Praise is God's idea. It's his plan. It's his idea. It's what we are designed for. And, and praise wasn't to be only on Palm Sunday only. And praise is God's plan to bring joy to his own heart. Did you ever realize that? Praise is God's plan to bring joy to his own heart. Praise, worship, that, that's not for the narrow reasons that we usually think it's for. Typically, we have an idea, oh, praise, when we praise God, it's, okay, I get it, it's for him. But we think of it somewhere along the lines like this. We, we imagine him sitting there smiling as we all bow and we're humbled and we sing and we worship and we bow ourselves before him, that there he sits in the middle of all this praise and he is smiling and, and that it pleases him to have little people like you and me praise him, prize him. Well, that presents a very warped picture of God. That presents a picture of a God who has an ego that is out of control, that he needs people to bow and scrape and praise him, to bolster his ego. Let me tell you about praise. Let me tell you about our God. The highest thing that we can conceive the best, the most beautiful, the most perfect thing that can fill our mind, that we can think of, is God. There is nothing higher. There is nothing greater. There is nothing grander. There is nothing better. He is the highest thing we can think of. We have no thought higher than Him. He's the best thing we can fill our minds with. If there were something greater, think about it, then that would be God. He, he knows then that when our thoughts are focused on him, that that's the very best. It's the very best. We're at our best when we're focused on him. He knows that. We've got a banner outside that says God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. It is true. It is true. So when we worship God, when we praise, God is pleased. For sure, He is pleased. And He experiences joy just as surely within Himself. When we praise, He experiences a joy within Himself. But it's because we are experiencing joy. And it's because He sees us at our best experiencing joy. 
There's a contemporary writer, John Piper, who says God's desire, God's desire, and my joy can become the same thing. And that happens when we praise. My joy is His. My desire is His. And somehow, this ragtag bunch of kids, they show us that. This bunch of milling, moving around, excitable, independent kids as they're calling out, God save! They're showing us that. That my joy and His desire can be the same thing. And then there's a very practical side to praise. It brings joy to God's heart for sure, for all the right reasons. But there's a very practical side to praise, and let me explain it this way. It's a side that benefits only you in a way that nothing else in life can benefit you. That more money cannot benefit you. That, that, that free time, more quiet time, longer vacation, those things will not do it for you what praise can do for you on a very practical level. When you praise, listen to me, when you praise, the enemy of your soul has to leave. He has to leave. He has to leave because praise, praise to God, praise that exalts God, praise that brings joy to God's heart, from our heart, real praise, it suffocates the enemy. And he can't breathe. He can't stay in an atmosphere of praise Practically, what that means is when you're having a tough time, that's the time to praise. When the walls are closing in, when the depression is too much to handle, when the bills are too many and the income is too little, that's when you praise because the enemy will suffocate and he has to leave. And when the enemy leaves, that gives God room to move, you see. So there's a very practical side to praise. You, you may not be liking some of the things that I'm saying in this message, but there's one thing in this story that you cannot miss. You cannot miss what happened here. They say to him, to Jesus, his critics, do you hear what the children are saying? Yes, he hears what the children are saying. But with their question, it's a veiled criticism. What they're doing is they're trying to force Jesus to shut them up. They're trying to force Jesus to put a lid on the praise. But Jesus declares openly about those children, they are right and you are wrong. Praise is the right thing to do. It's the right thing to do. A few days ago, I was on the playground with one of the grandbabies. And I watched, there were, there were several toddlers that were on that little playground. And I was watching them interact and, and learn to play together. And I realized something. You ever, you ever watch a child knock another child down accidentally? You ever seen that happen? Instinctively, you can see the look on their face. They know that what I do affects others. What I do affects others. What you and I do affects Jesus. What we do, what we don't do, 
it affects Jesus. You know, in this story, there's another question besides, have you never read, that he asks. And that question is theirs, do you hear what these children are saying? Because he did, he did. There's a strange story about Moses, the great liberator, the great lawgiver, the great leader. He went up to the top of a mountain, just he and God, and he received all kind of instructions. He received the beginning of our Old Testament, among other things, the Ten Commandments and all the rest. But when all of the instructing was done at the end of the 40-day period, Moses had a bold question to ask. I, I can't know Moses' mind, but maybe he was thinking, after all I've done for God, after all I've put up with, I'm going to ask a really hard one. And God kind of owes me. He'll give me this one. Maybe he was thinking that. Maybe he was just tapped out emotionally and he needed what he was asking for. But in this strange story, Moses says to God, God, I want more than anything to see your face. I've heard your voice. And I put my life on the line by listening to your voice. But for some reason inside of Moses that day, he said, I need to see your face. Could you do that for me? And God told him, here's what I will do. I will place you in this split place in the rock. There's somewhere near the top of a mountain and the elements have caused this great massive stone to split to form a a hollow place, a cleft in it where you could be protected. He said, I'll tell you what, Moses, I will put you in that cleft in the rock. And I will tell you to turn around. And then I will pass by. And after I pass by, I'll tell you now. And you can turn and you can see me from behind. But I can't let you see my face. And that set up all kind of conjecture. We cannot look on God's face. It would kill us. Would kill us maybe. Looking on God's face, would that kill us because it's too brilliant? Because the light is too bright? It would slice through us? Would it kill us because his face is too good? There is too much love there. There's an old Jewish tradition that says the reason you can't look on God's face and Moses could not is it would kill you. But not for the brilliance and not for the brightness and not for the goodness or love that you would see there. But it would kill you because the sadness on his face would kill you the things that he has to see and the things that he absorbs. You can see faces, can't you, that by their life experiences are creased. And experience leaves a mark, doesn't it? It's left a mark on the face of God. He's sad. And that sadness is overwhelming. Jesus 
was a man of sorrows, they tell us, and acquainted with grief. How acquainted with grief? Well, go to the final horrendous moments of the crucifixion. He's endured seven kangaroo courts. He's been mocked. He's been spit on. He's been disfigured by lashes and blows without number. He's bloodied. He's bleeding. He's broken. He's pierced. He's a spectacle. And in the final moments of his crucifixion, he breathes out his last and he dies humiliated. The executioners are professionals and they've received orders to hurry this thing along because it's a high holy day that's coming at 6 o'clock p.m. We need these bodies off of here and disposed of before then. So to make it more efficient and the killing come quicker, they take a great sledgehammer and they bust the knees of the two thieves on either side of Jesus so that they will have no way to support them and their body will sag and they will die of suffocation. But when the executioner gets to Jesus with the sledge, he thinks it's not necessary. He's already gone. But then he rethinks his orders. The worst disaster would be to have a botched execution after all of the trouble that everybody's gone through for this one. And so just to make sure, just to make sure, he takes a spear and he lunges it into the chest of Jesus, into his chest cavity. And he and the people that are in the know around him are amazed and terrified, really, to see what happens when out of that gaping wound comes blood, for sure. They've hit the heart. But out comes water. And not just a little, but a lot. A medical person would tell you what that means is Jesus did not die of the blood loss. He did not die of the wounds. He did not die of the excessive beating or the bad treatment. But he died of a broken heart. In other words, his heart, it burst inside of him. How much grief. Man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. How much grief? A lot of grief. His heart burst in his chest, he grieved so much. And I think our Savior must still grieve today at violence, at rebellion. Uh, I think he must grieve at people that will not listen to sound teaching and the truth. I think he, he must grieve at his own children who so often take a pass on what he offers them who are unfaithful in so many ways, who are very happy to take the blessings and thank you, see you later. How that must grieve him and hurt his heart. How that kind of ingratitude and neglect of prayer and praise and giving, how that must hurt. So, back to how we affect Jesus. 
I think Jesus could use some cheering up, don't you? And praise does that. One day, we will see him face to face. And the sadness that is on the face of this man of sorrows will be wiped away. And the last book in our Bible tells us that we will be present on that day when all of creation, all people, all the angels, all the creatures, all the planets, all the stars, all the solar systems, it all stops in a moment to give Him glory and honor and power and praise and majesty and might. And we cast our crowns at His feet in a mighty chorus of praise. And then the sadness is lifted when that deafening praise of all of creation, it falls on His ears. And we will see Him then just as He is. So you and I can read this book. We can wear the cover off of it and still miss the importance of praise. This is why we're to gather on the Lord's day. This is why he asked us to do this. We're not a social club where attendance is optional and we can make it up somehow by doing a service project. We're not a club. We're not an organization where you can come when you can. Come when you can, it'll do you some good. You'll get something out of it. Let me tell you something. This isn't for me. This isn't for us. It's for an audience of one that we gather in his name to praise. It's for an audience of one whose heart was broken for us. What, what did Jesus tell a very broken woman, a woman broken in body, broken in soul, broken in mind, broken in spirit? When he met her one day at the well, what did he tell this, this woman? He shared something with her, with, with this person who had an awful reputation deserved. This lady who had committed the worst kinds of sins and made the worst kinds of decisions. For some reason with her, he shared a deep secret that's known only within God himself. And he told her that day about his heart. He said, God is seeking those. In another place in the Bible, it says the eyes of God go to and fro across the whole surface of the planet. God is seeking those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. He's searching for somebody to praise him. And now the question is not, did you not read? But the question is, will he find what he's looking for in us? You've been listening to a slightly inspired message from Fairfax Assembly, a different kind of church in Bakersfield, California. Find out more at www.fairfaxassembly.com.